Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just the greater the length while the greater the strength the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. The Penile Rehabilitation Program was prepared by Melissa and for more information, please go to www.rshealth.com.au. It's an opportunity to learn all about the sexual function recovery and how you at home can learn to get going with that. Prost means cheers to your health, so prost to you. Welcome to episode 61 of the Penis Project podcast. Today we take another trip down memory lane with Joe, interviewing Patrick Lombroso. As always, his frank and honest approach to a difficult subject is refreshing. In this episode, he talks about rehabilitation, peronies, penile injections, pumps, frequency of erections for over 65s, and that not all pornography is bad. He also gives us his top relationship tip, which is treat your partner like an expensive bottle of wine and savour them. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. So, Patrick, I really like your um, description of male physiological erections being around the term housekeeping erections. Do you mind just expanding on that? Okay. So what I I often talk about housekeeping erections, and what I mean by that is is that prior to men undergoing prostatectomies, no matter what age range they are, most men will experience nocturnal erections. Now, these nocturnal erections, we really don't know as much as we should know about nocturnal erections um, because a lot of these nocturnal erections, even if you're a guy in his 60s, the average guy in his 60s is still having, they estimate, anywhere between, let's say, four and six nocturnal erections every night. Now, these aren't necessarily full-blown, you know, able to cut down tall timbers with, but we're talking about erections which there's inflation in the penis. Um, they're not necessarily sexually arousal-driven. They're, they're not driven by sexual arousal, but I call them housekeeping erections. So what we find is that a man, let's say if you're having an average of, let's say, four a night, mm-hmm. at the end of a year, if you do some back-of-the-envelope calculations, we're yep. talking in excess of 1,000 erections per year. Over 1,200, 1,500 perhaps. Right. Yep. So if you then, and look, you might be doing the maths right now. If it's wrong, right to Joe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, the, the situation is if you undergo a prostatectomy, um, those nocturnal erections go from between four and six a night 
Okay, so Joe's just done it, 1,500 erections per year um, for a guy in, let's say, his 50s, 60s. If you go from having, let's say, 1,500 erections per, no, uh, per year to zero after a prostatectomy, your penis is basically staying in a shrunken state. Um, the nerves aren't moving, the capillaries aren't expanding, the muscles aren't inflating, and you'll get shrinkage. Plus, you have a condition called fibrosis. Now, this is based upon my clinical opinion. It's not based on studies because no one has done studies in this area. But I'm starting to believe that that condition you talked about before, uh, pyronies or peronies, depending on who you are and how it's pronounced. Basically, it's a condition where you get scar tissue um, built up by collagen um, building up on one or multiple sites on the penis so that when the penis is inflated, you get curvature of the penis or deformities occur in the penis. So historically what's happened is you've had all these guys come along and say, well, this is all caused because these guys are having injection therapy and injections lead to scarring in the penis yep, and that's what leads to curvature. Yep. One of the leading guys in penile rehabilitation is a guy called John Mulhall. He is like the guy. He's known as the king of erections. Not amongst his wife, I heard, but that's another story. <laughs> Don't sue John. Um, anyway, but from what I – here's the thing. Um, and he's actually on – you can actually see the YouTube video of this. He has come out and said – he's at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City, one of the most respected prostate cancer you know, facilities, research facilities and hospitals. And he said, look, there is scarring from injections – but it's only at a microscopic level and it's only at the level in which the injection, um, by the way, the gauge of the needles themselves is extremely fine. They're the same type or thinner than the ones they're using for collagen treatment um, in, in, you know, facial, uh, you know, uh, collagen treatment that men and women have to remove wrinkles. Um, so here's the thing. He said, there is some scarring, but it's of a microscopic level. So a colleague of mine, or both yourself, um, Joe, and, and another colleague of ours, um, Annette um, Rich, Rich um, who do work in Peronis, um, Annette Rich came up, I, I, I suspected that he was correct, yet a lot of doctors were saying, oh, no, injections lead to Peronis disease. Annette made a very interesting observation. She said, how do you explain then men who are developing Peronis in areas where they don't inject? So in other words, most of my patients, um, when they do um, injection treatment, they will only inject on one side. We don't alternate um, from left to right and then return. And the reason is, number one, it's unnecessary unless you're using, you're not supposed to inject twice in one day anyway. Um, but because the needles themselves are so fine, if you're going onto the side of your penis that you don't have direct dexterity in yeah, and access to, there's a very good chance that you'll either bend or break the needle. Mm. And we hadn't seen this before, but now we are seeing it. It's a lot more common. So the thing is we've designed a different protocol which teaches men exactly where to inject depending on the day of the week. So if it's um, if the start of the week is Monday, okay, yeah. they know that they inject towards the base of the penis. If it's towards the end of the week, if it's Saturday, they know it's towards the length, further away. Okay. And if it happens to be a Wednesday, it's the middle of the week, they inject in the middle. So they never ever inject twice in the, in the same, same spot. spot. 
But the key here is is this, and what Annette Rich said, and she's been treating uh, as well as yourself, mm-hmm. um, Peroni's patients with now this new ultrasound therapy, therapy yeah. which is still in its early days, but you're getting some good results with, I understand. But she said, how is it that these guys who don't inject on the opposite side are getting Peroni's on the opposite side? My personal opinion is, is that because they're not inflating their penises and we inflate penises now, we rep, we, we, we mimic the nocturnal erections, okay. the housekeeping erections with pump, uh, using a penile pump, what we call the three by three, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But basically, because we're not replacing those nocturnal erections, these erect- these penises are remaining dormant. So that's where we get... Potential scarring. Yeah, um, the fibrosis, which they know. Fibrosis is directly... that Men who use pumps regularly have, you know less chance of developing fibrosis. Penile shrinkage. Uh, penile shrinkage, definitely. And also they found that men who use proper medically graded pumps, um, it can also help with things like incontinence and stuff like that. So what we do in our clinic is we've got um, a, a part of our protocol is that men use a penile pump every day, um, what we call the three by three, which was developed by the British Society of Sexual Medicine. And by that, what we do is we get them to mimic their nocturnal erections. They'll have a three-minute erection, which has been brought on by the pump. Um, they'll take a one-minute break, and then they'll do th- two more erections. Repeat that cycle three so, times. Exactly. So It's about a 12-minute. Yeah, it's about 10 minutes. I actually get them to do it while watching the news because by the time the weather's <laughs> finished, um, you're probably done. Um, so the, the thing is about that, um, when you talk to, once again, uh, and look, don't get me wrong, to become a specialist in this area, like a urologist, they, they've got to be at university for like decades. They know what they're doing. But the thing is, some of them get into this rut where they don't continue to develop as much as they should. So you get guys going, oh, but, you know, it's non-oxygenated blood that's being pumped into the penis. So therefore, it's not doing anything. To me, that's not the purpose of using the pump. Although now there are studies which are showing that it is oxygenated blood that's entering into the penis. The thing that the last study that came out in this area, what they didn't talk about, and often a study, you can see how good a study is by what they don't mention as well as what they do talk about. But what they didn't say was whether the oxygen was in the blood was at a critical level, which would have actually made any difference to the nerves. For me, it's not... Nerve recovery is not about just that area. It's about actually stimulating the nerves. And we use different mechanisms for this. Why we use the pump is not to try and... There's no evidence that using a pump will restore erectile function. They think that might, but there's really no evidence. of. But what it does is it helps prevent penile damage. Sure. So we use it not to restore function because we don't think it's going to restore... There's no evidence supporting the efficacy. However, we use penile pumps to prevent continued damage because the guy is not having nocturnal erections per. And just on that, we can actually use penile pumps for sexual activity as well. Yes, although once again, um, any idiot doctor, and I will, and I don't retract from this comment, any idiot doctor who sends you to a sex shop and says, oh, they're all the same, yeah, let's see you put one onto your dick and let's see how successful you are putting on a ring and uh, not hurting yourself or Mm. doing damage to your penis. They are not all the same. I know some of you will think, oh, well, you know, they're selling pumps for four or $500. Um, Why would I use one? You use it because there is medical evidence supporting the efficacy of that pump. 
You use it because these pumps have got FDA approval behind them. They've been through medical um, testing. Um, they are medical grade silicon. They're de- One of the things we see guys who actually injure their penises um, or the instructions that come with penile pumps. I had one, one guy who was in my study wore his penile ring all day. He drove around with his penile ring on. And no and he, more than 30 minutes is the recommendation. Exactly, but there's no warnings on the packaging. Okay. They're for novelty purposes only. Get okay. yourself a medical grade pump. The other thing that is a new form of therapy that we're using and that's the only area that focuses on nerve stimulation is um, is uh, penile vibratory stimulation and that's using a device called the Vibirect, although there are there's a more expensive version from Denmark uh, which the name escapes me right now, uh, which costs about three times more. But what penile vibratory stimulation focuses on is stimulating what's left of the cavernous nerve. So if you've had um, nerve sparing surgery or unilateral, you know, one-sided nerve sparing Just surgery. Just before you go on about the Vibirect, Patrick, how, do, how can patients find out about what nerve sparing they've had? Okay, really good question. Most doctors I've found will not tell their patients the extent of nerve sparing. The number of guys who have said to me, I'll say, well, you know, and, and this is in my clinic, I'll go, well, what was the extent of nerve sparing? Because this is absolutely critical. If you don't know what extent of nerve sparing you've got, um, you won't know what treatments to take. Because some treatments, tablets won't work if you've had non-nerve sparing. Pretty much they don't work. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a guy spending you know, thousands of dollars a year on tablets, becoming very despondent, and you discover that the doctor didn't do nerve sparing or the nerve sparing wasn't successful, um, you know, that's crushing for him. And it's also, he's, you know, it's not going to work. So here's the problem. If you, are, if you do undergo um, a radical prostatectomy, um, you need to find out from your surgeon what was the extent of nerve sparing. Was it on both sides or was it on one side or was it non-existent? What I do find is that if the cancer, if the guy had like a Gleason eight or nine or very serious prostate cancer, chances of nerve sparing with most of these guys is it's not going to happen. Mm. If they go to one of the old, and, and I know I'll get my ass kicked, but given I have brain cancer right now, <laughs> go for it. I might not be here. Um, <laughs> but what I find is that with some of the guys out there who openly go, I don't care about nerve sparing. Um, these are surgeons who have actually said to me, I'm all about getting rid of the cancer. I don't care about nerve sparing. This is from your interview process? Yeah, this is actually in my study, my second okay. study. So they're on the record as having said it. Right. Not identifiable no. because none of the participants can be identified. Yeah. But I, I have I have it on the record. that. Um, so here's the thing. If you've had nerve sparing, you do have options. With non-nerve sparing, in some respects, you know what your options are. You're either going to, with non-nerve sparing, you can either go injections or you can go penile implant. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, but one of the problems is, is that um, when a, um, a patient catches up with their doctor and they go, well, they don't know the question to ask. They often don't get told what level of nerve sparing. And the doctor will go, um, I did the best, best I, I could do. Yeah. And that's, so what does that mean? Like I've never heard of a doctor go, well, you know, I was having a shitty day, so I said, fuck it, I'm not going to do a good job today. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the, the guy is left, the number of patients who I've seen where we have to go back to the urologist and say, well, what was the extent of nerve sparing? Are you allowed to get the report here in New South Wales? Because I get my patients to get their specific pathology report. Um, It's not a pathology report. It's often a report that's done as far as the surgery is concerned. Uh, And the other thing is is I have found, 
I have actually found that um, among some surgeons, they've um, exaggerated the success of the mm. surgery. And yet, if I was doing a blind trial and you didn't tell me who their surgeon was, I can often tell you who their surgeon was yeah. by their results. Okay. Because we actually have uh, a company called Europath in Western Australia. Patients pay six or $800 out of pocket on top, but they actually get a, a, a whole report colour-coded with the measurement of exactly how much nerve tissue was You shouldn't have to do that because if you think about it, the doctor should be able to... I actually spoke to Philip Stricker, who is a fairly illustrious, you know, urologist, you know, euro to the rich and famous. Um, And, you know, I have to say I have deepest respect for Philip Stricker. Um, He's not everybody's favourite cup of tea, but... He, he is actually one of the true good guys as far as research is concerned and as far as ethicals is concerned. Now, here's the thing about Philip. I actually said, asked him one day, I said, if, if, a, um, if a patient is told that they've had full nerve sparing, um, how do they know? Because I know I've had patients from one particular doctor regularly get told, you know, they've had non-nerve sparing. Oh, sorry, they've had full nerve sparing, I should say. And... It's highly questionable because their results have been so atrocious okay. yeah. um, and consistently atrocious. It's like his patients are major outliers. If you compared their results against every other urologist out there, you would think these are major outliers in terms of the poor results they were getting. So when I asked um, Professor Stricker, I said, you know, how do you know if they've told you they've done their sparing, you know, is there like an audit? Does someone say, yep, you've done it or you've not? And I remember Philip Stricker saying to me, he said, no. Nah. He goes, no one knows for sure except for my patients. Okay. So I said, okay. <laughs> I said, that's interesting. I said, oh, uh, how come your patients know for sure? And he said, um, because all of them have access to a video. Okay. He goes, so they can see, he goes, all of the robotic stuff is videotaped. He goes, you can see okay. what extent of nerve sparing. Right. Now, I don't know and I doubt very much that's a widespread practice. And um, and the thing is, unfortunately, I've seen too many things that disturb me about this particular area of cancer treatment, which I'm not naturally suspicious, but I am, um, as a scientist, I am, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, not sceptical, but... Pessimistic? Not, no, not no. pessimistic. I, I, I want to see the... Cautious. Yeah. I suppose I want to see the evidence. Yeah. So he said to me, he goes, look, my patients have access to videos of how their surgery went. They can see the extent of non-nerve sparing. Mm-hmm. I would say he's very much in the minority. Okay. I don't know of anybody else who I does that. I am not sure either. Um, okay. But it's a critically important part. So if you are going through this, um, warning, look, warnings I would say, to anyone who wants to rush you through surgery, big warning bell. Um, unless you come out with a very high Gleason score. So high Gleason score is probably an eight, nine or higher out of 10. Um, Seven can be high depending on what made up the seven, whether it was a four plus three or three plus four. But the thing is you you have time to get a second opinion. Okay. The second thing is you need to prepare for recovery. So before you undergo the knife, the first thing I often say to patients is, look, ring up your surgeon and say, look, can I have 12 weeks to prepare or even eight weeks to prepare? In that eight weeks, drop some weight. If you're overweight, drop some weight. If you're a bike rider, stop bike riding because for some reason, and there's no science for me to support this, but we, I have found that there seems to be a correlation between guys who ride 
bikes in their 50s and prostate cancer. Statistically unusual. Maybe I'm just, I don't know. No, I've, I've, I've read similar things. Um, but the one thing is drop the weight. Certainly if you're a smoker or whatever else and alcohol, one of the things they'll get you probably doing is they might put you on some tablets to start off with like Viagra to clean out the pipes. Certainly you want to get in touch with a, um, a physiotherapist that specializes in, in pelvic floor strengthening and you really want to go to a proper person there, not just your average next door, you know, you know, you don't want to go to your typical physio. You need to go to someone who's got um, skill and knowledge in this particular area. Um, and it takes more than one session. And technique is extremely important. So you want to have someone who can, what do you call that equipment? The uh, Real-time ultrasound. Exactly. So, you know, I had the misfortune in front of 250 um I did a presentation in front of 250 people and they got me to drop my pants and um, and perform this examination in front. And I have to say, uh, my technique was terrible. And if it wasn't for the ultrasound, it would have continued to be terrible. So you really need to go to someone who specializes in treatment of, and that way you can avoid, in many cases, the one of the bad parts is incontinence. Um, we don't actually have to do the internal testing anymore. The ultrasound is considered to be a much more effective way of teaching men pelvic floor exercises as well. And then do your exercises. Yeah. Right? If you don't do your exercises, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I've covered a lot, but I don't, I don't know. Um, no, oh, we didn't talk about the, the Viber, nerve treatment. The Vibrorect. I'll just talk about the Vibrorect, just the, the penile vibratory stimulation. Now, you can use it using different devices. We choose the Vibrorect mainly because it's been approved by the FDA, the FDA um, and the TGA here in Australia. Um, and it's the only device that's aimed at stimulating nerves. The pumps don't stimulate nerves, the injections don't stimulate nerves, and the tablets certainly don't stimulate nerves. The only thing that actually stimulates nerves is manual stimulation, i.e. masturbation, um, and or um, mental stimulation, which is sending sex signals down you know, the spinal cord uh, towards the cavernous nerves that are still intact. We use a Vibrect. Um, you can go online and have a look at it. It's, it's a little bit detailed, but it's the only treatment that we find um, stimulates the penile glands, it stimulates the pedendal nerve and whatever remains in the cavernous nerves. Um, it helps reawaken those nerves and it assists in the, the release of nitric oxide, which is a, a neurotransmitter. It's what the nerves actually do to talk to each other. It's what they pass from one nerve to another as a neurotransmitter. And when would it be appropriate to actually start using the Vibrate? Um, if you've got poor or average erectile function, you could start before your surgery. Um, certainly after your surgery, if you're already using the pump and you're on tablets and whatever else, most of our patients are using a Vibrect for um, 10 minutes or until orgasm, whichever comes first. So it's non-invasive. Um, we get, we've had some really good results with it. Um, one of my favorites was we had a 74 year old single man um, who um, had no sparing surgery only on one side and he had a return of very high function within nine months. Okay. So that to me, given that he was 74, he wasn't the youngest chicken in the barnyard. Um, plus he was single, um, but he used it every day. Um, there are videos online. If you go to YouTube and type in um, Vibrect or uh, penile vibratory stimulation, um, I actually recorded a one-hour interview with the guy who invented 
um, the system and the technology. Yep. Um, so you can go and have anyone who's listening to this recording can go and look at that. That sounds great. Now, just a couple of final questions on social circumstances for men undergoing prostate cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. um, what happens if the man is single? Say down the track, they've got their continence back and their sexual recovery is emerging. They're between one and two years postoperatively or, or longer. Their reluctance to perhaps go and pursue women or partners because of their um, sexual dysfunction. Do you have any tips or um, recommendations for those sort of guys, guys who... Okay, how many fingers do they have? Usually 10. And their tongue still works? Right. So here's the thing. Remember, um, sexual recovery is all about... And, and think about it this way. Sexually speaking, you're not the same person you were when you were 18 as you are when you're 65. So it's about adaptation. So one of the things I would say to those guys is, number one, focus on creating relationships you can be transparent, but understand um, partners, whether if, if we're talking about heterosexual relationships, women after 50 are often going to have issues of their own anyway. It might be menopause. It might be they might have vaginal pain. There might be all sorts of things. What I will say to all guys out there is don't let it stop you. Okay. Most women aren't going to go for a partner purely because he's able to get an erection. And by the way, we said... You can get an erection, just use an injection yeah. or use other ways of getting there, but don't let it put you off. Okay. What I would say to you, however, is increase your level of sexual intelligence. And there are some great books out there. Um, one is actually called Sexual Intelligence by Marty Klein. Um, learn different techniques. As I said earlier in one of these interviews, you know, less than one in 10 women can climax through a penis. Less than 10%. Okay. But 100% of women, oh, sorry, less than 20% of women can climax through vaginal uh, penetration. Um, but 100% can come through either manual or oral, or oral stimulation. And, on the, and, and also, don't forget, um, one of her areas of sexual pleasure is her skin and her mind and, and taking your time and really, you know, if you treated a woman's body the same way you would treat a $50,000 bottle of Grange Hermitage, and you savoured and you really consumed every single square mil, understand you wouldn't be worrying about your penis. And this is something that most women who we work with, because we do sexual um, therapy work with women, this is what a lot of women are wanting. And they, they are starved of. Okay. So... And as far as gay men are concerned, look, gay men do actually have different issues. It's probably beyond the scope of this current interview, but there are issues relating to gay men, and gay men actually, I think, suffer a lot worse. Um, I know the suicide incidence for gay men going through prostate cancer is higher than the heterosexual. I haven't seen that research, but I know gay men um, are particularly disturbed by the fact that um, there's no ejaculate anymore. And not only... Gay men, that, that was something I wanted to bring up as well, not only with the loss of ejaculate fluid, but also perhaps the loss of urine and climacteria during any sort of arousal. Well, let's talk about climacteria then, because okay. I think that's an important area that, once again, very few people know how to successfully address. So climacteria is basically where there's a release of urine upon climax. Okay, so here's a couple of things that um, people who are listening to this need to know. Number one, I'm not saying that... 
you know, unless you're Donald Trump, um, most people probably don't welcome urine into the sexual uh, dynamic. But understand, urine is totally sterile. Um, if you have, believe me, worse things enter a vagina um, or into a sexual cavity than urine. Urine, there's no real problem with urine. The trick there is, is that number one, go to the bathroom before you have sex. Number two, make sure you've got towels and stuff like that. And if you're really worried about ejaculating urine during sex, um, it's really simple. Um, what we recommend is that you go and buy some oversized condoms, the biggest you can buy. Okay. Wrap the condom over the penis and hold it in place with one of those erection rings. Okay. Um, yep. Which you can actually buy online um, and secure it. Secure the condom with an erection ring. Well, guess what the condom's going to do if you actually expel urine? It's going to capture the urine. Mm -hmm. So you know what? The biggest thing is some women worry because they're worried, okay, are there health things that I need to yep. worry about if he expels urine? Um, and most men are going to worry, you know, the embarrassment side of things. If you've got towels and stuff around, um, it's really not that big a deal. Um, also, uh, if, if it is a big deal, and I've had a, a couple of gay uh, patients who've been really distressed by this, and they can actually have the sling uh, surgery, which can fix that. But through um, mulholes... That's got to... Yeah, that's... You're really then... If you're having to undergo surgery, and those surgery is without risk and stuff like effects, that, I, yeah. I'm saying just go and buy some oversized condoms. Yeah, that, that's a possibility. I remember um, listening to mulholes, uh, erection rehab... Uh, YouTube, and he actually talks about the fact that potentially most men's climacteria resolves in the third year. Um, perhaps the Vibirect might be uh, able to assist. But think about those poor guys who don't have sex for three years waiting for their climacteria to fix. Yeah. Unnecessarily. Okay. This is so what I'm saying. So the, go, the and empty your bladder. Yep. go and empty your bladder. Um, if you use this simple solution and um, the rings that come with pumps... Often you can use those rings um, or you get spare part rings. Can you get those erection, oh, sorry, on if erection If you go on erection rehab. rehab or Australian Health Supplies, um, yeah. they get sold separately. Um, there's ones by a company called Pheno Medical, which are pretty good. Um, and the reason is that there's seven rings in a pack of different sizes. So okay. you should be able to get a ring. When you're choosing a penile ring, um, you need to find a ring that's comfortable but not so comfortable. How, how do you spell pheno? Is that a, with a P-H-E-N-O, medical. Medical, okay. Um, but there are other brands of rings and stuff like that. But what I'm saying there is if you just wear a, a condom, just wrap a condom over. Mm. Most of the guys are horrified thinking that, oh, my God, I've you yep. know, wet, my, wet myself in the bed. Yeah. Um, that's the real thing. Yeah. That's the issue. Mm. Um, and this is also why... Go and see a physio, a proper um, pelvic health physio. Pelvic health physio. And if you don't know one, contact Joe. Joe yeah. knows everybody. Whoever you're listening to, right? You know, you I need can, to go. I can and, usually help. We have a few. And you know what? Resources. They're right around the world as well. So the thing is, but it is a specialty area. It is. Uh, a lot of my patients talk about the loss of ejaculate being an issue for them. Mm -hmm. And as a man, um, you know. I, I can't imagine the loss of it because I don't have anything to compare it to. But most patients do say to me that physically things change for them sexually because of this. It's an interesting point because I actually find that there's a wide spectrum of experience. Okay. Some guys say to me, it's great because there's no mess. Mm -hmm. um, more of them are concerned about their orgasmic function than they are about their ejaculate. 
Um, and the thing which is still a mystery is how guys, um, there are still too many guys who are losing orgasmic function and we're a bit at a loss to try and understand why that happens. I'm sure there's a surgeon who might be listening to this who can explain it, but if you think about the pedendal nerve, which is responsible for orgasm, it actually bypasses the prostate gland altogether. So this is why um, even with the, the use of the Vibrect, we're talking about using a device that is aimed at actually stimulating a man to orgasm. <clears throat> so it's, it works... It's got a double pad, okay, so it yep. stimulates the top of the penis where the pedendal nerve is running and the bottom of the penis where the two cavernous nerves, if they're assuming they're still intact. <coughs> Pardon me. So, um, so yeah, it's, I, I think the issue with, with some of the guys, and we have, we've had some guys who interestingly have said to me their orgasms are a lot more powerful Yeah, I've had that. Some have said to me they're less. Some have said to me they're painful. Often painful orgasm is not necessarily a result of the orgasm, but it's um, the pathways of ejaculate um, which go from the testicles to the... There's death friends. Yeah, all that sort of part. Um, That can actually be a little bit painful for some time after your surgery. Um, But some of these things, most of the time, you know, figure themselves out. Um, but yeah, we've had, had, we have had guys who, um, who have had difficulties with orgasms, in which case we then have to look at alternatives. Um, you've got to understand men can actually experience orgasm in different parts of their body and orgasm actually takes place in the brain. It doesn't actually, most men think that orgasm takes place at the penis, which feels like that's where it's taking place, but it's actually... It's actually a brain um, nerve response. I actually had a patient last week and he said to me, I'm like a woman now. I don't experience an orgasm in my penis. I experience it in my head. Yeah. And um, I'd had... want to ask him a lot more questions. <laughs> no, but he was talking about the physical difference, not having ejaculate, and it's much more... You can still... Well, when we say it's in the brain, it can still be an experience that then permeates the entire body where mm. you have, like, you know, the... the the, the sensation that passes through the entire body, that pleasure, that rush, or whatever else. For everybody, it's different. I think but yeah, we do right. still, but we still have that situation with some men who um, who experience um, problems with orgasm. One of my um, favorite comments from a patient once was that he was um, uh, basically a builder and he'd be asked lots of questions every morning, pretty much. Can you get it up? His name was Frank. Can you get it up, Frank? How's it going? Sort of like a bit of boy-boy talk. And he used to be very happy to tell all of the younger guys on site that, you know, he didn't need to get it up to have an orgasm and that he was finding uh, a renewed sense of lust and um, sexual confidence. Who would have thought brickies would be so sexually sensitive? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I just really wanted to ask one final question. When it comes to support, mm. a lot of people feel quite abandoned. One of my patients actually highly recommends everybody that he comes into contact to actually download your ebook that you've written for couples. Mm-hmm. Um, and for single men. But and for yeah. single men yep. as well. Yep. Um, and I guess your role is something that, even in my own experience, is very underutilised. Where I come from in Western Australia, we don't seem to give much of a priority to psychological service until someone's actually, you know, at, at the severe end of needing of someone. Of anxiety depression or anxiety. Or, yeah. um, so basically I just wanted you to make a bit of a comment generally about how 
uh, much better the medical profession can do about including the psychological focus as part of this regime? I have to say I think it's lost. It's a lost cause. I really believe that after having done my second study and having spoken, and the reason is is because um, it's not because they don't want to, but number one, there's a lack of time. Um, they don't know what to refer to. Um, there's a lack of understanding of the actual condition itself and they take shortcuts. So I have to be honest, if it what the people who really should be entrusted with this particular job, mm-hmm. um, I believe to be either the urologists themselves who have to provide it as an important adjunct to their service and people like yourself who specialises in pelvic floor strengthening and preparation, both pre- prehabilitation and post and rehabilitation. Sure. Um, we ha- I have more referrals from people from your profession okay. because you're more in tune with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've absolutely lost faith in the medical profession to do anything about it. And the reason is it's not because these people aren't concerned clinicians or they don't care about their patients or whatever else. There's major time constraints. They don't have the training in this area. Um, and by the way, this extends to people with heart disease. It extends to people with diabetes. You know, one of the biggest problems affecting men in terms of erectile dysfunction is not just prostate cancer. In fact, more men are affected through diabetes and heart disease and erectile dysfunction. In fact, um, when I see men who have erectile dysfunction, um, the first thing we do is we get them to go and have blood tests because often it's a precursor to the development of diabetes. Um, or they're heavy smokers or whatever else. So the thing is, the doctors, they take what's called a biomedical approach, mm-hmm. um, which means we prescribe a tablet or we prescribe an injection. Or, and, and we know sex is not just about the dick. It's about the person attached to the dick and the person he's planning to use the dick with. And it is... It's heavily based on behavioural patterns, um, cultural patterns, psychology, and in very large part, the level of sexual skill. And here's the thing. If you ask most men, are you good at sex? They're all going to say, oh, yeah, I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm telling you. No, most of you are really bad. <laughs> and, and here's the other thing. Um, thank God for all fundamentalist religion out there because I would say fundamentalist religion and the guilt and shame that people go through probably responsible for a good third of all of my patients who come and see me. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Mm. And so their patients obviously haven't been through prostate cancer uh, exclusively across the board. No, these are guys who come and see me and they say to me things like, you know, you got to help me stop masturbating. I've seen a guy who, who, you know, one guy did terrible damage to his penis Mm. because his religion, you know, prohibited him from masturbating. We actually see quite a few with um, chronic pelvic pain because they've been holding their pelvic floor tight, trying to push down their penis and to stop the erection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this guy actually took it to the nth degree and basically broke it in half. Oh, okay. Um, So understand. um, Look, forgive me if this is going to upset anyone who's listening to this, but when it comes to sex, religion is truly evil. Um, I have more sexual dysfunction due to um, psychosexual issues relating to religion and shame. Um, 
And the whole thing is tied up with... So doctors don't want to be asked these questions because they don't have the time. They certainly don't have the training. um, And they're not in a position to be able to do anything about it. So why would you want to open up that box? Mm. And this is why they don't refer. This is why... Women, women, think about women's issues. Women, Women suffer with vaginal or vulval pain for literally decades. And, you know... A lot of doctors will, you know, it's not a problem with the doctors. It's a problem with the whole. It's education as well because it's a very large part of the women's health um, physiotherapy role where we actually have that pelvic floor that's overtight versus uh, weak. Yeah. And you need to be able to establish what's going on there. And that, that's really only emerging as, um, you know, common knowledge in certain urology offices. It's been practised a lot more in um, gynaecological situations. But, um, Sexual medicine is still an area that, despite the fact, you know, Masters and Johnson started in 56, Kinsey was around, I think, in the 40s. Um, the Kinsey Report, yeah. Um, you know, there is so much misinformation, so much opinion versus fact or science. You know, I'll, people ask me, you know, you know, how do you define yourself? And I always define myself as a scientist first. Mm. So the thing for me is, you know... Um, Sometimes we can't depend on science because no one's actually done the study yet, but I still always go back to science first. Um, and to me, it's the most honest form of, of, um, of approach to this. But, yeah, it, the problem is it's not... A, doctors are already buried under a pile of responsibility to start off with, to forget all the compliance stuff they've got to do. So it's not going to come from the doctors. Um, I really don't know what the answer is. Perhaps education... Or finding stuff on the internet. Mm. Um, the problem is knowing what's crap and what's real. Can I just ask, um, before we wrap up, just one final comment on pornography. Mm-hmm. I have patients very commonly um, describing to me that their, their wives are not you know, really involved in their sexual rehabilitation. Uh, they feel a little bit um, guilty that they're accessing porn to try and help um, stimulate their recovery mm-hmm. and we had a conversation yesterday where you said that porn perhaps wasn't in there anywhere near as big a problem as the simple iphone oh no we actually prescribe um porn for men who are going through okay um we don't call it porn we call it erotic materials okay and um i actually say to the man if the wife happens to be there i will say it in front of the wife or I will write it down. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons is, is a big part of sexual function is desire and what the brain is doing. The brain is the thing predominantly that's sending the signals down to the penis, which says, hey, you know, there's a party up here. You've got to come and join us. You, if, if, and this is why men who are on antidepressants or highly stressed or whatever else, um, they don't have to have gone through a radical prostatectomy to have mm. penile problems. Um, so one of the parts of recovery is, is that you have to receive mental sexual stimulation. So I talk to couples about this, you know, how do you feel about this? Um, and if I say to the wife, look, this is really important part of his recovery. Mm. If, if you're not having regular sexual encounters, um, don't deny him this. This is mm. not perversion. This mm. is part of his recovery. So also the thing, the problem with porn is not so much the porn itself, but we call everything porn. Mm. And porn, once again, it fits along a spectrum. There's some really dark, nasty stuff out there. Mm. And then there's other stuff which is all romantic and flowers and... Chocolates. Chocolates and stuff like that. And all of that is called porn. And it's not the same. So 
the thing, when we talk about, um, I, I tend to use the phrase erotic materials. Yeah. Um, we need to remove shame out of this. And that was one of the biggest issues. Um, I'll be honest. Um, the number of guys who come and see me for porn addiction, and I've literally seen hundreds and hundreds of men, yet I haven't uncovered one single case of it. Is that right? Sex addiction, yes, but not porn addiction. Okay. And the most common <laughs> question, I'll go, well, what makes you think you've got porn addiction? And they go, oh, my wife tells me. Okay. <laughs> and you'll go, okay, that doesn't mean you've got it. It just means you like watching it, you yep. and 98% the of the rest of the, of the men. Yep. And the other 2% lie. Um, so, you know, <laughs> yep. it really – and the thing is, look, it's about if, – if we remove religiosity mm -hmm. and so-called self-morality and – we just took a balanced, educated approach to this, which is sadly missing. We took shame out of it and just looked purely at the science. Um, we're talking, assuming we're talking about people who have, who are mature, have some life experience, and so on and so forth. If you said, would you would you prescribe porn to teenagers and stuff like that? Certainly not. Mm. Um, we now have to evolve our levels of sex education for teenagers to include some education in terms of porn utilisation or consumption. Um, but that's going off the topic, topic here. But, but I will just ask you, if, if a, a female partner is, is keen to actually try and address her husband's um, rehabilitation mm. or sexual dysfunction, mm. what's available for women uh, to access? In terms of erotic material? That's right, yeah. Oh, listen, there's a crap load on the internet. Um, there's, I, there's literally like you porn, Pornhub, Lobster Tube. Um, there's within all of these sites. There's in some cases up to a thousand of different categories. So there are porn sites or erotic material sites just for women. In fact, there's a lot of material that's been written. Oh, sorry, that's been created by women for women. And also, so Erica Lust, I think, is one of the um, directors. There's a, there's a lot of stuff. So how do people actually access your services? Just go to the Man Focus Clinic, um, send me just a contact request or something like that. Okay, and just one final, final question. I've said one final a couple of times now, Patrick. Right. Um, sexual dysfunction is a global problem. If you had one message to teach the next generation about being better prepared to deal with this shameful area of life, where would you start? Throw away your phone. Treat your partner like you would treat, as I said, a $50,000 bottle of wine. If you were to drink a can of beer as opposed to a glass of wine that was worth $12,000, how would you compare both of those experiences? Yeah, well... One would be quality and one not so. Well, when I ask men this, you know, I'm saying, well, let's say you're sitting in front of the TV drinking a can of beer. How long does it take you to get through a can? And I'll go, oh, anywhere between, if it's my first one, three to five minutes, later on, 10 minutes or whatever else. And I'm saying, well, other than the first sip and your last sip, do you really remember anything in between? <laughs> and most of them will say to me, no, not really. You just keep on opening cans. And the one that you remember is the last one that you open and you know you've run out. Um, so then I say, well, okay, if I gave you a $12,000 glass of wine and I said, and we get them to hold this glass in front of them. Mm -hmm. So how would you drink that? And 
and I'll say, how would you hold the glass? What would you be looking oh, I'd look at the colour and I'd yeah. take big smell, you know, yeah. big... Savour it. Savour it and I'd swirl it around the glass and I'd hold it up to the light to see the colour and, you know, is it viscous, is it fine, is it, you know, and the sip would be a tiny little sip and I'd make sure mm. that it covered the entire tongue and mm-hmm. I would fight it on its way down and I would make sure that, you know, it's a $12,000 glass of yeah. wine. How yeah. would you... So if I said... If you gave your partner a $12,000 kiss, mm. what would it look like? Okay. And that's the approach. Mm-hmm. So the thing is um, my approach there is take your time but spend more time being attentive mm-hmm. and discovering and stuff. And the other thing is understand through almost every decade of your life you will discover new stuff. Your body will change, but you'll actually gain stuff and you will lose stuff. Um, change with it. And, and it's one of those things, believe it or not, if you if you remain a student your entire life, um, <laughs> every couple of years you'll find something, you'll discover something that will blow you away and you'll go, holy crap, didn't even know that was possible. And that's always been my approach. That, And that's why I, I think sexual recovery it's for a person who's gone through prostatectomy and whose intimacy and sex life, it's up there with food. Mm, survival. It's up there with food. It's it's like one of the critical elements to quality of life. Mm. So if you've got people who go, well, you're more than 60, I'll assume you're not interested in this mm. stuff or you're over it, um, that's saying more than about themselves as a clinician mm-hmm. and their biases. And this is one of the areas... It's saying more about their personal biases. Um, we have doctors who have sexual dysfunction. Yeah. So if we're assuming that we're going to get advice from a doctor and they know what they're doing, I can tell you there are a lot of doctors out there which don't know what they're doing. Mm. And this is not me having a go at their doctors. In fact, if anything, I'm trying to say, if we just looked at them as human beings, we'll realise that they're fallible as much as... And they just maybe need a little bit more understanding and upskilling themselves. And most of them just need to take a really good holiday. (laughs) Patrick, thank you so much for your um, time today, your expertise, your contribution to men's health, not just here in Sydney, but Australia-wide to my patients and globally. And I hope to share this wherever I go. Thank you for the honour of being able to talk with you. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there. All of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions and so much feedback. And Melissa and I are absolutely thrilled about this. What we'd really love you to do, though, is to share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download using your favourite podcast app or subscribe to the penisproject.org. You'll get a weekly email and new releases. And this helps our podcast to get more people. And if you write a review and subscribe as well, well, we'll get known more widely across the globe. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Women, just a mystery to me. I've got a boy of my own now. It fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man.